This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, my name is Mary Mercer. I'm one of the emergency medicine faculty at San Francisco General Hospital. Uh, I'm also one of the EMS or pre-hospital and disaster medicine faculty there. Um, and it's my pleasure to introduce our two speakers tonight. You're going to be hearing from, uh, you're, you'll be hearing again from Dr. Rachel Calcutt, who is uh, one of the co-chairs of this course, along with me and Sue Peterson, um, and who's uh, one of our trauma surgeons. And you'll also be hearing first from Dr. Clement Ye, who is an emergency medicine uh, faculty at UCSF and San Francisco General Hospital, um, and is the medical director for San Francisco Fire Department EMS. Thank you, Clement. So, uh, as Dr. Mercer mentioned, my name is Clement Ye. I'm a medical director for the San Francisco Fire Department. Uh, I also serve as medical director for our dispatch center, uh, and I uh, work as an emergency physician at uh, Zuckerberg, San Francisco General. Um, and uh, it's always a pleasure to speak here at the Mini Medical School. Um, it's re- I always have fantastic conversations, really good questions, and I'm really, really happy to be here. Um, when I always hear Mini Medical School, I think of like tiny little medical students. Um, but clearly, you are normal-sized people. So, um, um, I'm going to be speaking about the uh, uh, crash of Asiana 214. And uh, this is still, you have to pardon me, it's still very fresh in my memory. Uh, and I think a lot of our experiences... We learned a lot that day about our systems response um, as well as um, kind of personal responses. And I just wanted to first ask, I mean, do, do you, were you all in the area here on that, that day? I see a lot of heads nodding. Okay. Yeah, somewhat. Anyone involved in the response, either hospital or community-based? Okay. Um, I always have to stop when I speak about this incident and talk about what an incredible contribution it was for all the members of the community. Um, not only people who I was working with closely in the pre-hospital phase and on the ground, uh, but also our hospital providers and also just everybody else from uh, interpreters, social workers, uh, the American Red Cross, everyone who was involved. It was really a um, tremendous effort, uh, which um, helped to mitigate a horrible disaster. So um, also, as, as per tradition in these sort of talks, we did give a disclosures and disclaimers. And disclosures are where you get money for things. Um, this is a disclaimer, uh, which is simply to say that um, these are my opinions and, and uh, uh, not the reflections of the National Transportation Safety Board or any of the other affiliated uh, institutions. So with that being said, why don't we go ahead and get started. And I, think I have a short video to play here. Summertime at San Francisco General Hospital is always busy. The morning of July 6th, we started off really busy with um, one trauma right at 7 a.m. Sent that patient to the operating room, leading into a second trauma right after that. Take care of that patient. So by the time we finished rounds, it was around 11.30. I'm reporting an airplane crash at that Boeing 777, operated by Asiana Airlines, crashed. Asiana Airlines flight from Seoul, South Korea, crashed while landing. Apparently, she will probably die before the 
My pager went off. Then it said mass casualty. Quickly got in my car and drove to the hospital. On my way in, was listening to the reporters. That's when I started to really get nervous. It's like, this is a disaster. I immediately responded to the airport. In addition to being an emergency physician at San Francisco General and medical director for the fire department. All of a sudden, people start coming in from all over the place. There was an unbelievable outpouring of support, and it wasn't just the doctors. Uh, you know, for this place to work, it's about everybody. We do this all the time. We deal with multiple patients every day, all day. So we were ready. But it's just not every day that uh, you have 25 ambulances that are coming in back to back. We did not know how many patients that we would have. We didn't know the severity of the injuries. It was a really enormous comfort to know that San Francisco General was online and ready to take patients. The first wave of patients were really severely injured. And the first patient on the gurney that I saw coming down, she was very sick, and it let me know right away what we were dealing with. We immediately took several of them to the operating room. They were so clearly visibly injured that each one of them was really hanging on. And I remember thinking, if there's a whole plane full of people like this, there's a lot still coming. We saw everything from long bone fractures to abdominal injuries. We had spine fractures. We had brain injuries. This was really presented us with, with virtually every kind of trauma that you could imagine. And so there was triage being done in the emergency department, triage being done in the pediatrics floor. Whenever you turned around, someone was getting the bed ready for the next patient, asking if there was anything they could do to help. From the blood bank to the porters uh, to the nurse's aides. It really was a day where whatever needed to be done, we said yes. When I returned back from the operating room, it was clear to me that we had received a significant number of patients. I think at that point we were up to about 30 patients. There were just so many patients that were coming in one right after the other, right after the other. It was obvious that we needed to sit down and have a a briefing of all the injuries that happened. So for the first time ever, we had this multidisciplinary conference. I was just so moved. And as I looked across the room and I saw all the people and we were just so focused on making sure that everything was done right, I've never been more proud to be a physician at San Francisco General Hospital. By the end of the first day, we had received over 50 patients. And I think importantly to understand this particular disaster, it went on for many hours. It was pretty intense till about perhaps 9 o'clock. The emergency department not only took care of the patients that came through, but we also had our everyday holiday weekend Saturday to take care of, and we did it. I think what was remarkable that day was that while we were seeing all of these patients from the plane crash, ordinary patients from the city came in, and we put them in the queue and saw them. We were open for everyone that day. was a terrible day. One of the things that made it less terrible was the fact that as a system we were able to respond the way that we did. I think that the plane crash just kind of reinforced 
that we are capable of doing amazing things and we actually do it every day. I'm really proud of San Francisco General Hospital. Everyone really lived the mission that day. It was, I think, our finest hour in terms of how we do things here. San Francisco General is an amazing place and I'm incredibly proud of what we can do and what I think we will do. So, um, it's hard to follow a video like that, uh, but um, what I was hoping to do today is talk to you all about the incident itself and uh, mention some things about what it was like to be on the ground there, um, suggest uh, some considerations that you may have not have thought about when you think of a traditional um, incident response in a mass casualty incident. Um, and, uh, and, and usually I, I speak about this matter when it, uh, to hospital personnel and to first responders and firefighters and paramedics, um, but it's something I would probably emphasize to everyone um, about just general preparedness um, and sort of understanding a little bit about how these things um, work. I know that uh, already during this, this uh, course you've learned a little bit about how trauma resuscitations work um, and the functions of trauma surgeons and emergency physicians in the hospital, and I think this will just add over to your knowledge and help you understand how we um, help manage the system to provide emergency care to the entire community under uh, unplanned and unpredictable situations. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about the incident itself. I'm going to um, give you some details about the actual unfolding and notification. Um, I'm going to talk about some of the challenges of melding several mass casualty response plans from different areas and uh, also talk a little bit about some of the specific challenges of, of taking care of um, pediatric cases. So just to, I like to get the meat of these talks out out front, give you the answers first. So these are kind of the take-home bullets of this talk, which are really um, some general principles that, that uh, I think we've known in disaster management and emergency care, but really we're reinforced in this, which is, first of all, that uh, disasters have to be part of our normal response. You know, when we talk about what to do when something isn't happening right, we're most likely to be successful if what we do is something we've done on an ordinary basis. Okay, So if you think about that for your normal everyday planning, you know, when someone says, oh, my God, something is, is going on, and we suddenly decide we're going to do something for the first time we've never, ever done before, surprise. It's a lot harder than if we do something that we're used to, um, perhaps slightly different, perhaps at a larger scale. But my point is that we need to have that continuity and regularity if, if we expect something to, to happen successfully. Um, another thing, this is, this is kind of more for our hospital providers and, and um, pre-hospital providers, is that everyone laughs about our disaster response binders. Um, and if you know what I'm talking about, you know that there's a dusty old binder in a drawer somewhere, and that thing is useless. It's useless, right? Um, it's almost a joke, but plans are only as good as uh, the execution and the planning and the practice. So you have to have an active plan. I think that has everything to do with not only hospitals and the way that the system reacts, but I think uh, as individuals taking care of ourselves and our family and our loved ones, you have to have active plans that you're used to, take, you're used to executing, okay? Um, and uh, one other consideration that um, I like to emphasize in this, and it was mentioned a little bit in that video already, which is that um, when we send all of our resources to one place, when something unusual happens, um, you run the risk of forgetting to take care of everything else. Because 
those rest of the rest of the emergencies that happen uh, don't stop happening. Um, so the balance and the ability to take care of entire system uh, is is a challenge in in uh, emergency response and disaster management. Not necessarily only that incident itself, but everything else too. Okay. So um, on July sixth, on 20, in twenty thirteen, um, this is what we saw. And you'll have to pardon me, the audio is out of sync with this. Okay, and I guess the audio is not playing on there. Um, what you hear is um, uh, a, um, uh, there was a hard landing, this um, aircraft arriving uh, from Seoul, South Korea, uh, hit the ground, and there was a tower report. Um, there were a, n- a number of injuries. Um, and uh, let me just rewind this, see if we can get this one more time. Crash uh, on landing. They are evacuating patients on the flies. And uh, we have an unknown number of patients, unknown injuries at this time. And we're going to be using the north uh, field. Again, it's going to be the north field entry. And again, it's a Boeing 777 uh, crash on landing. And they are using slides from the uh, airplane. That's going to be possible multiple patients unknown uh, on the injuries at this point. We'll update uh, more to follow. So this is a good time to practice um, what I refer to as the boot principle in disaster management, which is the be out of town uh, principle. Um, But uh, if you can't do that, um, then you have to ask yourself, what do I do next? Um, And uh, as as many of us did that day, uh, that the answer to that question was pretty clear. Um, And the nice thing is that it's baked into a lot of training in our everyday operations. So um, these two women are um, um, Carla and um, Malia. And they were doing a routine pediatric interfacility transport at Northfield, which is, um, if you know, right adjacent to San Francisco International Airport. And they were waiting there, probably just thinking they were going to have a nice, boring day, waiting for uh, you know a mildly ill pediatric case to come in so they could just transfer them in this nice, smooth, ordinary manner to the hospital. And suddenly they um, saw a police cruiser roll around the corner, flag them down, tell them to escort them, and they were one of the first units on scene. Um, and they set up initial triage and transport operations. And um, one of the reasons that they were very successful in that is because of their training and their equipment and their expectations that were placed on them. So we have um, ordinances that, that designate that pre-hospital providers and ambulances are equipped with multi-casualty supplies uh, for situations like this. Uh, even if you don't expect that that, your day, that that day, they were equipped to do it and they did a wonderful job at it. Because as in many of these larger scale incidents, if you set down those patterns as the foundation correctly, uh, things improve uh, afterwards. And if you don't get that exactly right, uh, there can be some problems and a lot of work afterwards to undo those. So um, that's just another point about uh, trying to incorporate, again, those kind of aspects in, in, in uh, emergency response into our everyday lives. They were very prepared, and uh, there was a lot of benefit from that. So um, who drove here today? Did you guys drive? A lot of people drove away, so, so did I. Um, so you're used to this. Dispatch. At SFO Airport, this is for plane crash. 
Unit 2, Engine 44, Engine 15, Engine 42, Truck 15, Truck 17, Division 3, Battalion 9, Battalion 10, Rescue 2, Medic 55, Medic 86, RC 3, Responsible Patrol A3, Attack is A9. So that's a lot of units going through a lot of traffic. This happened to be a you know ordinarily busy day on 101, and as you know, I, th I think this is usually this is a Bay Area crowd, so you guys all know San Francisco International Airport is not in San Francisco, right? <laughs> so it happens to be down 101 um, in San Mateo County, and getting resources there from the city was a challenge. Um, so this is this is what it looked like getting there, um, and then. Uh, this is on the tarmac. A medic 44, a medic 31, a medic 24. Report of a air crash at San Francisco International Airport. Your escort is going to be at Northfield Checkpoint. And the responding crews um, saw what you see on the right there, uh, which is um, both... Uh, white and dark smoke coming from a obvious crash with separation of aircraft. Um, and uh, some of the initial rescue efforts had been set up in triage areas, um, but when something like this happens, one of the first things is, in a scene size up is being able to figure out if you have enough resources and kind of where to put those resources. Um, so I have a, the next slide. Uh, this is Michael Marsh. I'm an internal disaster for AMR San Mateo County. I'd like to declare a level 8, level 8 MCI. Give me an out-of-county strike. Okay, so uh, Mike is, um, at the time, was a uh, paramedic captain with AMR uh, in, in uh, San Mateo County, and um, he happened to be at uh, San Francisco General Hospital. Um, this is a, a very sad case. He was visiting a colleague um, who was in the ICU there uh, from a serious injury. When he um, heard the radio call about this incident and immediately uh, left the hospital and proceeded down there. And he was, uh, I think, ahead of um, uh, Battalion 2. Um, so he was one of the first medical group supervisors there, and he assumed um, the medical group supervisor role. And you can see he's there um, with a communications uh, coordinator trying to, trying to set up triage operations. Um, and it, again, I'm going to talk about this in a couple other slides, but some of the informal communications um, some of our nurses in the emergency department actually stated that the first indication that they had was they said, we remember a very angry and panicked-sounding paramedic leaving the emergency department and saying that there was a plane crash. This is before everything else happened. So um, some of these early warning um, signs would then uh, kind of turn into triggers for action. So let's look at what it looked like for crews responding on the tarmac. And you can see some of those operations. You saw the Coast Guard helicopter on the left there, and you could also see that there are ongoing fire suppression activities. Um, so there were some of the airport fire suppression apparatus were already there trying to extinguish and spray foam on, on the uh, plane, and you had multiple ambulances arriving as well as a triage area that was being set up. The most critical patients that were on the tarmac initially uh, were ones who were not able to walk. Okay, so uh, people were placed 
you'll see in another photo about kind of the setup for triage tarps. Um, there's a standard triage uh, kind of language and flow that people go through and they're color coded uh, and people are being basically being sorted on these triage tarps, being reassessed, having any emergency procedures that need to be done on the spot done uh, and then immediately those folks are being transported to the trauma center. Um, here's another uh, photo and um, you can see um, again in this picture here you can see the uh, uh, you can see some of the uh, ambulances already arriving there and then the triage tarps being set up and in the background you can see this ongoing um, uh, fire suppression activity so these are some photos from some of the f folks who were the first off of the plane from passengers themselves um, and you can um, immediately notice that uh, folks who were coming off of the plane and, and the victims, they, they were like everybody else would be uh, after a long international flight um, arriving. They didn't have shoes on. They didn't have their identification. They didn't, uh, most of them did not have any other belongings, and they, they immediately were finding themselves in an inexplicable situation and needing to evacuate, and many of whom were injured. And uh, so this is what you got. And so people were being rapidly stabilized and moved off the tarmac here. I'm going to kind of rapidly move through some of these other photos, which many of you may recall. Uh, these got a lot of uh, press, as these were very dramatic. This is some, some um, shots of the uh, responders. And I mentioned those immediate, most severely injured people who were evacuated off of the tarmac on those tarps. Uh, those were the first 48 people, uh, the majority of which um, went to the trauma center or uh, to the north or the trauma center to the south. And uh, those that were stable were then moved to gate 91 um, where they could be monitored and re-triaged and um, further assessed. And then we could, a massive transport operation occurred. They were actually moved in these makeshift, I mean, the same, uh, uh, the same buses that move you um, within the, the uh, uh, off the tarmac when you have to kind of get off, get off on, on, the, on the road there, we, uh, we used to move patients from the uh, crash site over to gate 91. Okay, so you can see there's an example of one of them. Um, and, uh, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have something more dedicated than a, than a um, repurposed uh, van or, or bus here? Um, and this is, this is just a little bit of a... One, one of the secondary reactions to, to the incident itself is that these are uh, our one of our two mass casualty transport vehicles that we have with the San Francisco Fire Department now. So um, we're able to actually move a large number of um, not only ambulatory, you know, walking, or, but people who can't walk. Uh, our mass casualty transport units one and two, you can see the inside there, are equipped to have people in a reclined position. It would have been great to have those that day. But nonetheless, people who were um, more stable were put in a secondary casualty collection area in gate 91. Um, we had paramedics and EMTs and uh, we're reassessing them and then basically sorting them and distributing them to area hospitals trying to even the load uh, and make sure that we got people to the right place in the right order. Um, this is simply a uh, breakdown of how the mass casualty incidents uh, broke down with both the different um, counties. My only point in this is that uh, within about 90 minutes, we were able to get all of the patients off of the tarmac itself. Um, so if you look at what we do in pre-hospital care as purely moving people, um, that was a massive effort, and I would say very successful in getting people out of the immediate danger, getting to a place where they could be cared for, um, if not to definitive care, at least where they could be established and sorted and then moved. 
Similarly, uh, and I think we'll probably hear much more about this, um, the hospitals really were able to um, increase their capacity and, and spin up their res disaster resources. So these are some shots of both uh, San Francisco General um, and uh, Stanford. Up here on the left here, Stanford. Uh, this was the old ambulance bay. Uh, there's Patty O'Connor and Sabrina. There's Dr. Brown down here in the lower left here. And then this is one of the mass... Uh, the repurposed um, uh, buses that were used to transport some of the more stable uh, victims of the crash. So um, we always, in mass casualty incidents and talking about disaster response, we always talk about communication. And a common theme you will always hear if you go to a presentation is about the challenges of communication and how communication breaks down. I think it's, it's intrinsic to a, um, a large-scale incident that you have communication challenges. However, there's a lot, some things you can do to, to mitigate that. Um, I would kind of take that to the personal level um, and ask yourself how prepared you are um, to communicate with your loved ones and find out and get help, um, for instance, as we might expect in a large-scale um, disaster if your cell phones don't work, right? What, what kind of backup plans do we have? So um, really... Uh, you've got to talk about things like redundancy and also contingency planning. One of the interesting characteristics of this particular disaster uh, was that we had a lot of language barriers. As I mentioned, um, we had uh, a large number of non-primary English speakers on the plane, um, a lot of folks from both South Korea uh, as well as China, um, and uh, being able to effectively communicate with them is, is, was a challenge. Um, and uh, I can talk a little bit about some of the um, contingencies and how we were able to overcome that, uh, but that was something that um, you don't see a lot in, in kind of our standard approach to mass casualty incidents. Another aspect of communications, um, this, is a, this was a tweet by a man named David Yoon, uh, who's a Samsung executive, who was uh, one of the first people. This is, how the, this is how a lot of the world found out about this um, crash, is that uh, Mr. Yoon came off, turned around with his, um, I must have been a Galaxy 6, uh, uh, turned around and, and took a photo and then, and then tweeted this out, and everyone said, oh my goodness. And this is before the pagers went off. The ring down went off. The emergency operations center was up. Uh, and that would just kind of be... One of my big messages to responders is that we used to expect that there would be a call down and your 911 center, would, all this stuff would happen. That is too slow now. That is not the way things go. That's very 1990s, um, and this is, this is kind of the future of, of how we're notified about anything that happens. As I mentioned before, um, there were uh, over 300 people on board, the majority of whom were um, non-English speakers, uh, and um, over 175 of them were transported to area hospitals. So we distributed patients around, and they had a lot to do with the specific needs, whether they were people who were traumatically injured. Um, but also, uh, we, we did expect that there would be um, more burn patients. Um, that did not actually turn out to be the case, that we had people who were severely burned. Um, but then also, due to the fact that we had a large number of um, folks who were traveling on school trips, there were a lot of children on this who were traveling with chaperones, um, and uh, that was an immense challenge. And one thing that we learned from this, uh, and I think we're just now in the disaster response community really getting our grips on, is the importance of family unification. Uh, our normal schema for understanding the way that we sort people and send people is by the, the, the mechanism of injury, the severity, who's the sickest and who needs the most care first goes. However, um, if anyone can put themselves in the shoes of a person getting off a plane here, um, if, if, if it's me and my family and you tell me 
you're going here, excuse me, um, and your son or daughter, mother, father is going somewhere else, it's going to take a lot to move to separate people. I mean, I understand if, if people are critically injured, and that's not something that we take into consideration a lot. The other thing that, that was very interesting in this incident was the fact that so many people uh, needed reunification. Um, and so the fact that we try to distribute people around in a system to basically load balance, uh, that comes back to bite you when that means that instead of one or two or three reunification centers, you have 14, you know. Um, and uh, so that, that can be a challenge. Um, just in terms of patient distribution, uh, patients went to, to all the surrounding counties, many of the area hospitals, uh, and we, in fact, had uh, several different waves of patient arrival, um, not only including those first people who were the sickest off of the tarmac, but many waves that basically uh, corresponded to new waves of ambulances coming in, taking patients, and then going out. And that even persisted to um, the following day and days uh, when people who were stuck in the area who um, you know, had some minor injuries decided that the, they actually had more pain or something that was unrecognized before, and then they sought help. So this is an interesting um, aspect. When we conceptualize a lot of these disaster responses, we think of the first few hours the first few minutes, and it's, that's not really the case. It actually can prolong for many, many days afterwards. Um, we revised our patient distribution plan after this incident, um, recognizing that um, when I mentioned the color codes, uh, people are color-coded in terms of the severity um, and whether they can walk, uh, and then they're usually, we have kind of a no-notice plan of where people go uh, to make sure that we can kind of load balance. Uh, but we decided that we needed to expand the number of uh, the minor injured patients to accommodate for our ability to keep people together um, and also just understanding that we needed some more flexibility rather than separating out you know, a family of four into two different hospitals or a school group of six into three different hospitals. That just didn't make sense, especially if they were minor injured. Another thing that we learned was about the surge capacity. Once the hospitals were notified and able to spin up resources, things grew by a great deal, more than we ever expected. Uh, people were able to really step up, open new clinical spaces, provide new, more personnel to, to respond. And we even had um, a phenomenon called reverse triage in which people who were in the hospital were moved out to make capacity for expected incoming victims. All right, that was a new thing. Um, and to, this is a... Um, my partner, Mike, who sometimes we speak on this together, he always says, this is my crazy graph here. This is a, a, an analytic graph of our load uh, in the EMS system during that day. And you can see, um, to make it kind of simple, plane crash occurs here. Boom. But soon afterwards, we return to kind of a normal staffing level, right? Um, and our response metrics... Uh, were quite appropriate uh, for that day. They were within one standard deviation uh, for you statistics folks of the day, which to me is, was able to say that we had a very flexible and elastic system, if you were, if, if, if you, if you uh, might say that, uh, to be able to absorb that kind of a flow. Um, similarly, in San Mateo County, uh, they were able to kind of meet their contractual agreements um, and provide services to everyone else, including a large working fire that happened uh, right after the plane crash. It was obviously unrelated. Um, so the final point that I like to make in thinking about how the field response went is about really thinking about when do these incidents end. 
I mean, you're going to hear from Dr. Calcutt again that the injuries that people sustained um, and the types of care they needed, this is just the beginning. There's a long, long road ahead. But oftentimes we think of incidents as being over when an incident commander says the last person has gone off of the, the, uh, out of the disaster or we've shut down those type of operations or everyone is at the hospital or everyone's been discharged from the hospital. Well, that's really not the case. Um, we had a, there was a large law enforcement presence. There were challenges with patient reunification um, and uh, a lot of post-incident analysis, as well as the fact that um, you know, many people who were involved in this incident went straight back into the system and took care of other people who were having heart attacks and strokes and major and minor injuries. Um, so uh, that is a, uh, a challenge that people really stepped up to, but I, I don't think we can be unreal in thinking that there's no consequence to that. Um, so fatigue issues um, and uh, uh, sort of responder and provider safety and, and health were a really important consideration of this. Uh, and I don't think we can ever plan enough for that. So again, just to sort of summarize um, my thoughts on uh, the initial pre-hospital response, I would say these general principles apply to all sorts of, of responses. And uh, some of our efforts afterwards are really to address specific um, identified challenges in this. Things like incorporating disaster plans into our everyday operations. Um, things like making sure that we have active planning um, and we don't just have these, these kind of monolithic historical plans. We actually have living plans with people that can execute them. Um, making sure that, that we play well with all the other people that we're expected to play well, well with and we don't have challenges just making the pieces fit together. Um, and finally, not forgetting that not only do we have to respond to one incident, we have to sort of take care of uh, the entire system and make sure everyone is able to receive the care that they need, not just the high-profile, um, immediate um, incident. So with that, I think I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Rachel Calcutt, um, and uh, I think we're going to take some questions at the end. So um, everybody who had some role in this disaster has their own story. And what you just saw um, is a little bit of the story of the pre-hospital providers. We're going to um, go back to a few of the points that were made and expand on them. But I'm going to start by kind of telling you my story. So this was an extraordinarily busy week for us. For those of you who've been around academic medicine, you will realize that the timing of this crash occurred the first week of the new residents being here. So I often, about every other year, I get the pleasure of being the first point of contact for our surgical trainees um, when they come to San Francisco General, and I take that first week as one of the site directors. It's usually a very challenging week for us, and in this particular week, it had been extraordinarily busy. Um, we had used about 150 units of blood products in the 48 hours preceding the event for multiple very sick patients. So we had relatively depleted the blood supply in the city, and there were ongoing blood drives. We had plenty of blood, but there had been a hit. Dr. Ye mentioned this, and I'll come back to it. We, at the time of the plane crash, had 52 other patients on the trauma service at San Francisco General, one of our highest censuses ever, on our primary service um, that we were responsible for. So figuring out how we were going to take care of them in the face of all this other going on was very challenging. 
This was alluded to um, at 7 a.m. in the video you saw, there was actually a very sad emergent case ongoing in our OR, and that uh, person was involved in the pre-hospital community. So there were many people around in the emergency department at the time, and that's how the initial notifications to those of us who were in the hospital, we started hearing all of, overhearing all of this stuff on the radio that we as providers who don't work in the pre-hospital environment didn't quite understand what we were hearing. So very, very challenging set of circumstances. This is my story for those of you who know the city. This is Madrone. Here's the baseball stadium out here in the Bay Bridge. Um, I live here, and I was actually sitting right there signing notes from the week. So one of the serendipitous things about this that many people don't know is that we changed the way that we rounded on our service, and this was the very first week that we were going to try it out, the very first Saturday morning that the service attending who had been caring for the patients Monday through Friday would get the Saturday off and serve as the backup attending, and a different attending would round for them to give us a chance to catch up. I was actually signing charts electronically at the pool, and I remember thinking, and I had my pagers with me, I remember thinking that it was incredibly quiet, very quiet day. My pager kept going off and kept going off and kept going off with all of these other traumas coming in that preceded the crash, and I thought, oh gosh, this is the first Saturday we're trying this new plan. I'm going to go in if there's another one. A little story about the plane. I am told, although I cannot verify it 100%, that this photo in the top corner here is an actual photo of the real plane that crashed that was utilized in some promotional materials in the year preceding when the plane crashed, so very serendipitous. Um, you heard a little bit of this in the earlier talk, but this is a Boeing, Boeing 777. At the time of this crash in July of 2013, no Boeing 777 had ever crashed before, and it was considered one of the safest planes in the sky. Some of you will note that there has been some subsequent um, crashes of these planes and some other mechanical problems with them, but at the time it was really considered to be a very safe aircraft. There were 70 children, about approximately, on the plane, all unaccompanied minors um, who were coming to the South Bay for a summer exchange program, and they had um, most of them uh, were not accompanied by parents. For those of you who came in late, we're going to try to play this again. This is... you sort of have to wonder why we have this video. So the thing that I will point out is the people on this plane watching that plane crash on the runway right next to them. You can imagine the disaster we would have had if this plane crashed and flipped the other way into this plane. The reason we have this video is because someone serendipitously was recording planes taking off and landing, practicing with their new video camera. So that's why we have this video, actually. But you can see the plane twist up. So there were some official notifications which you will hear about. Our first official notification at the hospital, or what I would call hospital notice, came from a police officer already in the emergency department. And there was a lot of rumors floating around within the hospital system as to what this was. And initially, people were told it was a small cargo plane, and it evolved from there. And importantly, which you saw that Twitter um, picture, we were under the impression that everyone was okay. You saw this in the video. This is the page I get. And for those of us at a trauma center, MCI means lots of different things. It can mean multiple casualty, which is actually a smaller event, or it can mean mass casualty, which is a large event. I would argue that this page is not particularly helpful for us. So there's been a lot of discussion about what we should do in future. So 
When we got this news, everyone kind of didn't quite know exactly what to do as the news was flowing in, and so many people actually turned to social media. This is actually the very first tweet. Happened 30 seconds after impact. Someone was standing waiting to board another plane at the airport and snapped this and then posted it to Twitter, and it says that this was Asiana 777 coming from Taipei plane was not coming from Taipei and caused a fair amount of panic amongst people who were waiting for persons from this plane from Taipei. What you see here is some of my research. I work on the use of social media for disaster planning and signaling, and this is actually the real Twitter feed. The different colors are different Twitter handles for the plane crash, and you can see how rapidly, within just minutes of the plane crash, this is 300 tweets per minute as this upper limit right here. You can see how rapidly the Twitter sphere fires. And so we're doing a lot of work on how we could potentially use this for notification. You heard this earlier. Communication is always one of the things that we worry most about in disasters. There are lots of reasons why communication fails, some of which were explained earlier, and we're going to go through a couple of others. But the important thing is, is that what often defines one of these events is our ability to respond to the information that we, rece that we receive. Lots of reasons why communication fails. If you have a big, massive earthquake and all the cell phone towers fall down, it doesn't really matter if we have a cell phone system. That's not going to work, so we have to have redundant infrastructure. The other really important thing for you as the public, and you guys see this with every disaster and every event, is that the media instantaneously comes to us, and they're asking us for information at the time in which the least information is known. And that's why we're always very cautious and careful about the information that we give out. Because what we call the disaster myth is really hard to correct. It took a really long time for people to correct that that wasn't a plane from Taipei. Um, we work hard on our side to try to control the message that goes out so that we can make sure we're consistent and clear and not cause extra stress on the public as to the information that goes on. Since I have had this experience in taking care of these patients from the plane crash, we'll talk a little bit a minute about what I did and what my role was. Um, as I was driving to the hospital from my condo, it's only five minutes from my condo to the hospital, my, in my mind, I was going through, what do I know about a plane crash? Literally, in my mind as I'm driving there, what do I know about a plane crash? What am I going to see? None of us trained to be trauma surgeons and trained for plane crashes. And I kind of wondered these things. Would I have to think about what these people had been exposed to? Um, Dr. Ye alluded to this, but you see there's two different types of smoke burning in the plane. Clearly there's something different burning here, some substance than here, and these have different potential risks to the patient that we have to think about. Um, for me, this is what I know about a plane crash. Does anybody know this? Some of you may be familiar with the movie Soul Survivor. So this is the sole survivor, this little girl of Northwest Flight 255. I was born and raised in the Detroit Metropolitan Airport, and this is a plane that crashed, uh, you may recall now, on the freeway in 1987, and everybody on board died. This is burned into my brain, pardon the pun, because my father had a seat on this plane and did not make the flight. Um, so this was a very interesting experience for us as children to live through this, and many of his colleagues died on this plane. And that's what I was remembering as I was driving to the hospital, that I wasn't sure there was going to actually be people for us to take care of. But when you actually read the literature, 
It's actually remarkable how survivable plane crashes actually are. I've gotten this question quite a bit when I've talked about this. So most plane crashes occur in the first three minutes or the last eight minutes. Over this time period, it was estimated that 95% of all plane crashes were actually survivable, believe it or not, but all of us remember the ones where there are no survivors. In the United States, at the time that this event occurred, you only had a 1 in 11 million chance of dying in a plane crash. So planes are really safe. But one of the things that's particularly interesting about this plane crash is that the statistics show that if there's even a single fatality, if there's a fatality on the plane, there's only a 4% chance of having survivors. So what that means is the way planes are engineered now, either everyone survives or nobody survives. It's very unusual usual to have a plane crash situation like what we had in Asiana and have almost everyone survive but have them be so injured, which I'll talk about in a minute. There is actually very little data about what to expect when when people are injured and do survive because most of the data actually comes from autopsy studies. So a lot of Rib fractures and lung injuries have been seen on autopsy studies. A lot of diaphragm injuries, so a lot of blunt chest trauma. A lot of brain injury and skull fractures. That's some more. And then a smaller percent of abdominal injuries to the solid organs. That would be like liver, spleen, kidney. Some stomach injuries, some pancreas injuries and a lot of injuries that are orthopedic in nature. Many of these are not fatal injuries, but specifically these spine injuries, just similar to what you would see in the old lap belt only of a car. You'd hear about people when we only wore lap belts, that when they slam at impact, they fly forward and then they fly back and they actually essentially fracture and dislocate the spine and they end up paralyzed. So a lot of the non-fatal injuries in plane crashes actually have to do with devastating spine injuries. So um, we uh, often, in disaster planning at the hospital level, think that the people who are going to come to us first are sort of the walking wounded or the people in disasters who can get themselves to the hospital first. But we knew immediately that that would not be the case in this event because, remember, it takes place in a secured airport behind security. This was an international flight. No one cleared customs before they came. There's a lot of security issues. And so what we do at the hospital level is we launch something called Hospital Incident Command. That's You saw some pictures with the little vests in there. There's a prescription pre-prescribed, sorry, that's hard to say, way that we are all taught to respond to this for those of us who are responsible for responding, and we each have designated jobs, and that's how we stay coordinated. So that got launched pretty quickly after the accident to help coordinate the overall hospital response, and then you heard in the first 30 minutes, we got 10 patients, eight adults, two kids, um, five or six critical, depending on how you um, count it. So what happens when the disaster plan is activated at the hospital? You heard us allude to that. You've seen some of these pictures. This is actually a tent upside the hospital. Lots of people coming in, security. So we cleared the emergency department as fast as we could of all the patients who were in the emergency department who could go to other parts of the hospital and get some care. So they were out of there immediately to free up a tremendous amount of space for us because, remember, we don't know exactly how many people are coming. 
we got rid of as many people in the hospital that could go to other facilities that could take care of them. So whereas we're the trauma center and maybe we have something that we can do for these patients that some of the other places can't, if someone's still in the hospital just needing IV antibiotics, there are lots of places around town that can give them IV antibiotics. So we got them out as quick as possible. We tried to take an assessment of our resources. Dr. Ye alluded to, this was a holiday weekend. This was a 4th of July holiday weekend. So lots of people were not around. They took that acronym of being out of town when there's a disaster. And we set up a command center to try to coordinate activities. These are the six patients that we first saw. Patient number one uh, actually was one of the few people who had burns and had inhalation injury. Patient number two and patient number three were near death when they came in within minutes and went directly to the operating room. Patient number four went emergently up to the operating room because they had a limb-threatening injury to their lower extremity that needed treated. Patient number five went to the operating room after three, two, three, and four. And patient number six went up to the ICU. Really sick people. And remember, these all came in the first couple of minutes. So how did we do it? So we follow this concept of dual command, and it's a mutual way that we work with our emergency medicine colleagues in these times of disasters. Dr. Brown and others were outside from the emergency department actually triaging the patients when they came off of the various ambulances and sending them to various designated areas of the emergency department depending upon how sick they were. Within the emergency department, I filled this role. There were three of us that filled this role and passed it off as our needs needed to shift where we actually oversaw in conjunction with the emergency department the oversight of the care plans. So every patient who needed a CAT scan, every patient once they got evaluated, someone either from the emergency department staff or from the surgical staff would come to me and tell me who they saw, what the patient they thought was going on, what imaging they thought they needed, and where they thought they should go. And we kept a running list, and that all filtered through one of us senior trauma surgeons so that we could coordinate every aspect of the care of the patients. We do also something called secondary triage. So we initially think that we know what's wrong with the patients, but it is often in times of mass casualty that patients can evolve over a short time period and need to be reshifted into a different area of the emergency department as their care evolves. And so that also helps us to keep track of everyone. This was a question that we had to ask ourselves. You saw this picture before in Dr. Ye's talk. If I have people who need to get to work to help expand our workforce, they're not getting to work very fast. Okay, So you have to take an assessment of what you actually have and figure out what you're going to do. We also had to ask ourselves, how many of these people did we need? And we actually started telling people to stay at home because we don't want everyone to come right away because we're going to need people to replace the people who are there. And often everyone wants to come because it's very exciting. Um, we also had to ask ourselves, where do they go? Where do they gather? And, and you heard Dr. Manley say this in the video, one of our neurosurgeons, that people, it was tremendous, the outpouring. So initially, we, on the surgical side, had three attending surgeon-led teams that went to the operating room, many ED-coordinated teams. We had five anesthesia teams available within a 30 minutes of the event. We have lots of trainees that helped out tremendously, and we have nurse practitioners that are highly skilled. We talked a little bit about this, and I just want to say that um, 
This is the consultants that we used during this time period to just give you a sense of how injured the patients were. So about a quarter of the patients needed a neurosurgeon, about 16% needed an orthopedic surgeon, a whole host of other things, and we even had someone who needed a cardiologist due to their injuries. I alluded to this before. It is July. The interns are coming. So when I'm looking at this from my perspective and I have to take care of 52 people as inpatients and another 67 people who ultimately came to us over the course of this, how am I going to get these interns who didn't know where the bathroom was at the beginning of the week able to take care of patients on their own? So we decided we'd form little mini teams and we dispersed everyone in these mini teams and made them stay with the patients and then they would report back to me. It really allowed us to provide rapid care to people and make sure everyone was actually doing something they were capable of. We then made a very uh, wise decision since we had so many sick patients already in the hospital that we actually took some of our senior most trainees and sent them to those areas. Normally you wouldn't do that, but I needed people who could function somewhat independently and send out the red flag when they needed more senior help. And you got to have really good team communication, which we'll talk about in a second. In these disasters, you have to view everything as a limited resource. So you don't often know how many people are coming. You don't know how many if the people you're seeing in front of you are the sickest people or if there will be more to come. So we triaged everything. We triaged blood, which I'll talk about in a minute, and we triaged CT scanning. But we made a conscious decision after we saw the injuries of these first people that were so severe that many of the patients we decided to actually get imaging on them, advanced imaging with CT scans. In many disasters, you don't do that um, unless the patients look sick. But what's interesting for us is 50% of all the scans we got were positive. So these patients all experienced massive blunt force trauma, and many, many of them were seriously injured. This is a very interesting paper. It's the only scientific paper I'm going to show you in this talk. But there's been a study where they, there's one of our former fellows, Karen Brohe um, from San Francisco General, who practices in the United Kingdom. And they looked at a bunch of mass casualties because the assumption is always that lots of people will need lots of blood. It actually turns out that in mass casualty situations, less than one out of every four patients will require blood. And only about 5%, one out of 20 people, will require a lot of blood. So that's important for us because usually when we see seriously injured patients come in, we automatically activate blood activation, and we have it brought to us in the event that we need it. But in a mass casualty event like this, you can't do that. And so it was one of the very first things that we stopped, please don't bring us blood unless we ask for it. So it's a very different way that we care for the patients. You heard a little bit about this. Um, There's another picture of people getting on the long-term shuttle, parking shuttle bus in their wheelchair. Um, 53 patients to to SFGH initially, 55 to Stanford. Ultimately, we ended up seeing 67, a bunch of people to other places. And you can see, if you know the the geography of our city, most of these places are places that could be reached with the barriers that we had in transportation. There are some centers that were closer to the airport, but because of traffic, there was no way that an ambulance could actually get there. You heard this a little bit earlier, so I'm going to go through really quick. Over a four-hour period of time, a bunch of patients, we continued to get patients until 7 p.m. Remember, this happened at 11.30 a.m. So for us at the trauma center, seven and a half hours into this, we were still dealing with what we should do with these patients. We had 36 of the 53 initial patients we saw get admitted. So remember, I had 52, and now I have 36 more. So um, two deaths at the scene. 
two ejected from the plane and found on the runway in their seats. That is the conclusion of the NTSB, and I would say that um, I agree with that. These two patients were our two sickest patients who initially came in, those two that were in extremis. So the seatbelt worked because they stayed in their seat, but the seat went out of the plane with them. So we think what happened was when the tail came down, they were thrown out the back of the plane and then skidded along the runway. We had a suspicion of that based on their injuries when we saw them before we even knew the facts. Over here in this table, which is a little hard to read, is from one of the publications we've written about our experience. Lots of spine fractures, um, one out of five people, lots of extremity injuries, less traumatic brain injuries, and then a whole host of other things. Lots of spine injuries. You saw this picture. This is a really tremendous picture. I cut myself out of it and made myself dark so you can't see me. What you can't see, the reason for that is for patient protection. What you can't see here that everyone's holding is the list that I actually kept that day that became our census where I wrote all this information down. And I took it out of this talk because um, just for patient purposes, but you can very simply keep track of these patients. We then photocopied it and gave it to everyone. That's what's in their hands, and that's how we rapidly dispositioned the patients and got them what we needed. These are all the operations we did in the first 48 hours, so a lot of operations, very, very busy. And you, we alluded to this a little bit in Dr. Ye's talk. This went on for a very, very long time for us. Um, we saw patients over the subsequent few days who thought they were initially okay. And I think what's more important for us that we learned in this is we have to really think thoughtfully about how to take care of our providers, not just our patients, but our providers. Um, this was a particularly tough day. This is Peggy Knutson, one of my senior partners, who bravely said she'd go out and tell the media that one of the patients died. Um, this is my patient who died. Very difficult day for us. And the last patient from this accident didn't leave the hospital until October. So remember, this happened in July, and that patient was so sick they were in the hospital for October. So for those of us on the inpatient side who cared for these patients, we lived this for a very long time, which has an element of trauma to it. And every time one of these families arrived from uh, outside the country, they arrived and we'd have to sit with them and go through the same emotional conversation about how devastating their family members were injured. It was very, very difficult for us. Um, one of the things that we learned from the families is that the um, they were told in their home countries that everyone was okay. And so when they arrived, they thought they were coming to pick up their loved ones and fly back home with them. And when they got there and we sat down to tell them what was going on, they we had to somehow... Um, respecting their cultural um, understanding and the language barriers, tell them that whatever you thought on on your media, because the media outside the United States was saying everyone was fine. So they had no idea when they flew here that their loved ones had been permanently injured. Things can be very simple. Family meeting area. So where are we going to make a family meeting area? What we learned was that our call center immediately was overwhelmed with calls. None of these patients were identified um, just by the nature of where they were coming from in the world. Many of the names were spelled and sounded similar, and none of these people had ID. So that was a problem for us. We gave them all disaster aliases, which is great because it helped us keep track of them. So they were 
disaster hotel, disaster this city, disaster that city. That's our nomenclature to keep track of them so we don't have to worry about their real name initially. But that meant that none of their loved ones could find them, so reunification was somewhat challenging. We realized we needed a central area to try to do this, and we're going to talk a little bit about customs in a second. Um, Remember, none of these people cleared international customs. And the most difficult part was this is what started happening when the families arrived, and I think what I would just emphasize as the public, this guy right here, um, these families immediately had cameras in their faces everywhere they went. Um, People tried desperately to get in the hospital, tried to pose as family members to get into the hospital to get statements from these people, and we were absolutely on lockdown. But can you imagine grieving your loved one who's died? This is actually the mother of one of the kids who died, and this guy is taking your photo. So um, we, fortunately, in San Francisco General, are probably one of the places in the country that's most well-equipped to deal with the cultural um, barriers that you would face in an international crisis like this because we have such uh, great interpreter services and such diversity in our workforce. So we very quickly actually had 20 different languages that could be spoken, someone on site that could help us with that. Um, The consulates from several of the countries arrived, and we set them up in our cafeteria. And consent was very interesting because in a lot of, we had to do a lot of procedures on a lot of these patients, and um, in some of their countries, consent is not asked for by doctors. So trying to figure out a way that you can communicate it, that they can understand it was a very interesting and phenom- phenomenal experience for us to learn from. But we didn't think about some of this. The language barriers. So the airline company, one of the things that they did was they hired an interpreter, um, to help with the families and keep with the families 24-7 and have them move around the city with them as they were moving back and forth from the hotel. Those interpreters wanted to be involved in the medical conversations, but they weren't medical interpreters. So we um, had some challenges with that because we would say one thing and they would translate something different. So things like that. International flight. The reason all of this stuff is here, are these all the pe- these are all the people who showed up that we had to have somewhere to do them. So our cafeteria at San Francisco General became essentially customs. Um, The Russian embassy was the first one there, but there were no Russians on the plane. (laughs) We're not sure, but they sat there the whole time. So we're not really sure, but this is actually photos from them working. They all, we got them all phones, and that's where we set it up. Border and customs actually cleared the people in our cafeteria. So when we wanted to discharge a patient who had been worked up, their injury was addressed, and we wanted to send them out of the emergency department, we couldn't because they had never been cleared to enter our country. So they had to go to the cafeteria and go through a modified customs with no ID. So very, very interesting experience. So I'm just going to leave you with my final thoughts. Um, This is the last press conference of the first night in front of San Francisco General, and I walked out with one of our residents and said, you hopefully will never see this again. This is a Giants game, the first game after it with everyone pausing. This really was something that touched our entire city and the spirit of our city and continues to live with us, um, many of us. These are my actual Facebook we were postings. We were very, very careful to make sure that our trainees and all of our personnel only posted official things. So you can see that we linked to things here. But you can set, you can hear, see right here if you can read this. This is very surreal experience. For the first time in over 24 hours, I had a moment to catch my breath and see coverage of the crash. That was the first time I saw the plane. So we were taking care of all these people having never seen the plane or any of that, and it was shocking. Uh, For me, I was at the hospital for five straight days with brief intervals to sleep and then continued to care for these patients until the last one left on October 31st, so a tremendous experience. 
can't do this without the help of so many that you saw in that video. And this is just my story, but this is actually a story about many, many people. And we made everything possible that day. Even the workers in our cafeteria stayed to make sure all of us had a warm meal. And they were there all night long, which normally is not the case at San Francisco General. So just a tremendous effort to get all these people to survive, with the exception of the one who died in the hospital who had fatal injuries. So with that, I'm going to close, and Dr. Ye and I are going to answer questions. Yeah. So um, it sounds as though some of the, I guess, lessons learned or maybe changes that came as a result of an after-action report included uh, how to deal with incident communications in the first place, and then also... um, uh, patient relocations you talked about, um, and then dealing with blood supplies that you didn't need, and then also interpreters. But are there were there other? I'm sure there were hundreds of, of lessons learned, if you will. Are, what are the significant other kinds of things that occurred? Um, sure. So the question was, um, uh, you know, there were there were many different. Lessons learned, um, and what are what are some of the other more significant lessons learned? Um, I, I, I want to back it up a little bit and rephrase your question. Maybe um, I think one of the things that I um, there were many many lessons learned. Whether it's you know we can do things like increase capacity, um, you know with advance notice we can mobilize um, a lot of transport resources. People can really step up. Um, one of the things that I still think about um, quite often is um, things. Uh, as, as Dr. Calcutt mentioned, uh, so many people uh, made tremendous efforts and overcame a lot of the structural failings of the system. My question is, why does that happen all the time? So that's kind of the biggest thing I would, uh, I would say is a lesson learned, is that we actually can do a tremendous amount. And the challenge is how to make that happen all the time. Um, so, uh, but you know, I would also just emphasize not only on the, on the communication side, um, we were able to uh, mobilize, you know, a multi-county response, um, and uh, some of on the in the pre-hospital phase, some of some of the challenges that, you know, we dealt with then, you know, everything from radios not talking to each other uh, to not having formal agreements and and plans about um, who's going to respond where uh, were things that have been rectified since. So did that part of it result in? Yes. Right. So the question was, did that did that um, result in uh, points of common points of contact? And yeah. So the you know we after this we you know it's interesting. My colleague in San Mateo County and I looked at these looked at our actual mass casualty plans and we bulleted them out, looked at them side to side, and we realized they didn't line up. You know, there were gaps between them, and, and they, they do much better. I won't say there's ever complete overlap uh, because it's a different area and different challenges, but uh, they, they uh, align to the, to the extent that now when we drill, we don't have nearly the same kind of you know, questions that we did before. So I think that that, that was a big help. Thank you, Rachel. On the hospital side, for us, uh, I think the big lesson we learned was that 
we could actually have cared for more people than we thought we could. So that's part of mm-hmm. um, adjustment to the numbers. Um, we were remarkably organized, remarkably able to move patients through at a much more rapid pace than people realized. So if we were ever needed to be called to action again, I think this built the confidence of people that we could do even more. And so that's been factored into our planning, both with uh, our colleagues on the EMS side and the disaster planning side, as well as within the hospital. The second big lesson is for the hospitals in the area. I think this was a bit of a wake-up call for the non-trauma centers in the area, many of whom had disaster plans that hadn't been dusted off for a while. They participate every year in shakeout and stuff like that to plan for earthquakes. But I think they always had this idea that the trauma centers would rescue them, and that is simply not the case. And so we've had many requests to give this talk or variations of this talk to a lot of the hospitals in the area because they have now uh, have an increased focus on what they would do in a disaster scenario. That's maybe the most important thing that's come out of this from my perspective, other than the coordination across the counties. But you can imagine if we had 10,000 victims from an earthquake, um, I I can't take care of all those people. So we're going to need those out in the community to help us and know how to work with us in doing that. So I think that that's one of the big take-home messages from this. Yeah. My understanding is that if you're going to be in a big plane crash, it's a good idea to crash someplace like SFO where you have access to this wonderful care. Um, do you have any pointers for um, that terrible event if it happens? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the first thing is people actually should wear tie tennis shoes or something like that on an airplane. You see all of us who travel for business get on an airplane with nylons on, which are highly flammable, high heels. They come off immediately when the plane crashes. So the safety experts say you should wear some kind of tie shoe and some long pants on an airplane. They're... um, Traditionally, the front of the planes have been less safe than the back of the plane, but this is one of the events where the back of the plane was less safe. Um, But most people say the back of the plane actually, my dad says the cheap seats are actually the safest, um, if you actually look at the data across crashes. The other thing I would say is, I actually didn't point it out in a picture, but I should have pointed out to you, um, you got to follow the flight attendant's instructions. we, I have a great picture of people coming off the plane carrying their carry-on luggage with them, and the plane is burning behind them, and people on the other side of the plane were super injured, and they were an extremist, and these guys are walking off the plane with all their luggage. So when they say, leave it on the plane, leave it on the plane. Um, and the third thing is, don't deploy the slides until people tell you to deploy the slides. So one of the slides was deployed inside the plane, and that trapped people, and that contributed to some of the injuries that we saw. So follow directions, wear the right clothes, pick the cheap seats, and uh, leave your stuff behind. Yeah? As a, as a doctor, when a person can't communicate with you, how do you determine their pre-existing conditions that may affect your treatment? How, how do you possibly, when you run immediate lab tests? I mean, what do you, what do? You do? So uh, every seriously injured trauma patient usually gets a standard set of labs drawn, so that sometimes will give us a tip-off, although abnormalities can be simply related to their injuries themselves. In the 
Um, patients who cannot communicate with us, we follow a standard set of protocols, lab draws, and we frankly make some assumptions until we know um, how they are. The interesting thing about people's comorbidities is in the first couple of hours when I'm caring for the patient that's really, really injured, those comorbidities become secondary. The comorbidities become extremely important in the long-term recovery of the injury and the way that they respond to losing a lot of blood, as an example, or having a bad head injury. So it's not as important for me to know them in the first couple of hours as it is for me to know them in the subsequent 24 to 48 hours. If I, if I, could, if I could make a comment, um, this is, again, towards that question of, of the language barriers and how do you overcome it. Um, one of the you know, uh, interesting principles of, of field triage that happens is that you know, um, you're supposed to know that one of the first things you do to sort people is to say, if you can hear the sound of my voice, come over here or go to this spot. You know, that helps you take the people who can hear understand you and walk and move them away from the people who cannot do either of those things. That's kind of a first level of sorting. That's a very difficult thing to do if people uh, don't understand what you're saying. Um, but uh, my friend uh, Mike Marsh mentions that during the incident here, he thought about that um, as he was rolling onto the scene and he could see the, 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 the crash in the background and he realized you will run away from a burning airplane. Um, <laughs> and uh, so there's, there's a certain you know, nonverbal uh, just you know, making that. But then the other thing I would, I would say is that the basic field assumptions of, of triage and the way we assess people, it's a very gross assessment. We're not asking for very de detailed questions. It's simply following basic commands um, and uh, being able to make sure that uh, people's respirations are intact and they have you know, apparent good blood flow and things like that. So it didn't, um, at the pre-hospital level, didn't require a lot of um, careful uh, communication, which was a good thing. However, um, as you heard uh, both from um, some of the, thing, the stories I relayed and then Dr. Calcutt, like being able to, that, not being able to communicate with people in a situation like this was just terrifying, it was just incredibly uh, scary. So that was a huge challenge to be able to get over that. You also have to remember that um, we didn't actually have identification. We, had, we knew everyone was accounted for because we had the right number of people across the hospitals, but we didn't know who was who for the people who couldn't tell us. So that's how we were able to say we knew everyone had been accounted for, but it was many days before people were identified, and some of the patients we had to identify by things like nail polish because they weren't able to communicate with us, and their families could tell us they were wearing X color of nail polish, as an example. So it was very frightening. We were their family and their caregivers until we could find their family. Back there. Yeah. I have two questions. How were the severely injured people carried off the plane, and would it have been helpful to have a helipad at San Francisco General that, unfortunately, some of my co-neighbors opposed, uh, your neighbors who supported it, but yeah. asked. I'll let Dr. Ye answer the scene part of it, and then I'll answer the helicopter part of it. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the, the severely injured um, folks, um, so it, many of the um, – the, the initial um, uh, the initial response of people leaving the, the crash wreckage, it was uh, people leaving on their own, right? So everyone who could get off got off on their own. Um, there were some people who were around uh, some of the crash debris. Um, and as Dr. Calcutt mentioned, we have various theories about how they got there and what the injury patterns were that were associated with that. But people who weren't able to, to be walked were rescued. Um, so they were, sometimes they were helped by other victims of the crash. Uh, but for the most part, um, our first responder crews were able to you know, get to them um, and then you know, put them on uh, some of our hard boards and move them from there. Um, and then, um, yeah, in terms of the helipad. 
So um, there were actually some Coast Guard, there was Coast Guard helicopter that was used at the scene to take some folks to Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that actually only was a couple people. So if there had been more helicopters, they probably wouldn't have gotten to us any faster. And remember, you can only land one helicopter at a time, but more than one ambulance can arrive with us at, at the same time. So given the short transport distance, um, I don't think a helicopter would have mattered. However, we do wish we had a helipad. For lots of reasons. Uh, yeah, and I, w- I would just reinforce that. I mean, um, there were particular nuances of this incident. I mean, you know, uh, where a better place to land a helicopter than an airport, right? So there were that was happened to be available. The transport resources as they came in, um, you know, once a, once a helicopter was available, the sickest person was put on it, and they were flown to the next place that it was available to go to. And there were more limitations about the fuel and who could land when um, than uh, than anything else. And then the other thing is, I think of um, a helipad as more of a resource for a sustained. Um, you know, if we have a sustained incident where other routes of, routes of transportation are incapacitated or overwhelmed, um, then absolutely a helipad um, is uh, is something that uh, that we should have, and I fully support that. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of uh, unaccompanied minors, as you mentioned, many of whom I assume didn't speak English. Correct. And many of whom needed medical procedures and care. How do you deal, what's the protocol of dealing with consent uh, when you really can't get realistic consent uh, in a situation? So um, you try your best to get assent from minors who can communicate with you so that they at least understand what you're doing, and we were able to do that with interpreters for those who didn't have parents and weren't accompanied. It is not legal consent, but the law says in times of disaster like this, as long as you're practicing in the standard of care, you are protected, and for all of these folks, that's where they fell in. Um, we actually, for the really very, very um, injured patients who are unidentified, we never get consent in that situation because there's nobody to consent and we operate under the standard of care of doing the right thing for the patient so the ones we can communicate with assent as children and well and then do the standard of care but great question yeah i to ask you a little bit about triage um, because triage I think must mean different things in different contexts mm-hmm. so I noticed you were talking about salvage Oh, great question. So the question was about was about triage, and um, in particular, um, you know, the the concept of salvageability and um, how does triage differ in an urban high resource setting versus in a more austere setting. Um, so, uh, boy, this is a, that's a very good question. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to start here, but the the, the concept being that. Um, Overall, the, the pur- overall purpose of triage is to be able to provide benefit to the most number of people, right? And we have just, let me just kind of introduce as a paradigm, no- in our normal everyday care, we, um, we mobilize maximal resources to anybody, uh, particularly when they're critically ill. One of the big differences in the way that mass casualty or most triage systems um, operate is that uh, when you have people who are very, very, very severely injured, um, at some point you have to decide that you're not going to dedicate resources to them, right? Um, so we use, and there's, there's too many triage systems to, uh, to really describe. And um, I would just sort of say from an uh, analysis and sort of science basis, there are 
probably isn't a great argument for one triage system over the other, just that there is a method that we, so that we sort people and then we have a standard language that we do them. Um, the triage system that we use um, here uh, is called start triage and jump start triage, and it has to do with assessing people's uh, respirations, pulse, um, and their mental status, uh, and then also sorting their ability to you know, walk and follow commands at that first level. But that kind of helps us sort people who are most critically injured uh, from those that are not, so we can get the more critically injured people at the front of the line to get to the resources quickest. But the biggest uh, paradigm is that when you start um, dealing with uh, that type of sorting, you are making an initial uh, determination that, that um, in a certain situation, you're not going to devote a, a large number of resources to somebody who, for instance, is not breathing um, and is not walking uh, and only has a very thready pulse. If you have you know, a, a whole field of other people in front of you and a limited number of resources, that may not be the best way to, to, to uh, allocate your resources. Yep. In a combat situation, um, what a similar thing happens, but there's a tiered response in the combat situation. So um, what they do with their triage is initially in the field, they have people with some very basic medical training that try to provide just immediate care, like put a tourniquet on if someone's bleeding from an extremity, figure out that that patient needs to be extracted right away. They don't provide a lot of care in that initial triage. They then get them to what they call level twos for most of the military um, disciplines. The level two centers can actually provide surgical care to a limited number of people. They typically, um, for example, with the Marines and the Navy, uh, the Marines that deploy in the level two centers, they can they carry about 50 units of blood products and can take care of about 50 casualties if they had to. Um, and then they evacuate them off to somewhere else to a higher level echelon care. So that's kind of how they do it. One of the interesting things about combat is that they have to actually worry much more about security and hazard than we typically do in a civilian center. So they actually do triage outside of the tents, and they actually strip the patients completely down and take their stuff away because people have shown up with grenades that have gone off and destroyed various things. So they have to worry a bit more about security and about things like biologic weapons and decontamination. There's a whole decontamination triage also that we consider in these situations, which I didn't allude to, because remember, black smoke, white smoke, different color things, toxins, and, and we can't prove it, but some of these people seem to manifest some elements of exposure. So they think a lot more about that in the military, but that's how it works for them. So their triage is a little bit different. Did, did, that, did, that, did that answer your question about um, in, in terms of uh, salvageability? I'm not sure I totally got at that. Well, you know, honestly, I could probably sit here and ask you a whole lot of questions. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I, I will also speak to that. Um, that's one of the most difficult things that we have to do in disaster management and true mass casualty situations is make pretty quick decisions about how much resource we can spend in terms of people's energy, effort, and actual tangible resources like blood products on someone. If you have 50 casualties and someone's really, really sick, you can probably spend something on those people. If you got 10,000 casualties that are really, really sick, you probably can't on that person who's an extremist. And those are decisions that we have to make in terms of how much resource it will take to save someone's life. Well, I respect your decisions. I'm wondering if you're comfortable. I'll just ask one follow-up. Um, are you comfortable with the three deaths? Did you, I mean, obviously the one died later, but the initial two that died, I presume, 
Zoom died on impact or shortly thereafter? Did you feel that you did as much as you could for every patient? Did you have that luxury in this case? So I'll speak to the one that died in the hospital, the fourth one. Um, that person had catastrophic injuries that were a result of the impact. And it wouldn't have mattered what we did for that patient. They had catastrophic injuries that would have been exceedingly difficult to survive from. And, you know, I'll, I'll sort of address um, your question about the, the deaths that were there on the tarmac. And, um, uh, I mean, your question was, you know, uh, how comfortable do people feel or do I feel about the, the treatment that was, was rendered there and if they have the appropriate resources? Um, and I would say uh, I'm not comfortable with it. Uh, I would say that, you know, people, we shouldn't be comfortable with it. Um, and there are people who are always going to be asking what was provided and what wasn't provided. Um, so that's kind of the, the short answer. I would say that um, the, uh, the first um, casualty on the field that was discovered also had um, uh, you know, very severe injuries that were, I would say, not compatible with life. Um, and um, so uh, there were some very, very severely injured people, and I think that there's still a lot of questions and uncertainty and, and discomfort with um, whether things could have uh, gone, gone differently, and I think that that's a, a nature of um, this tragic, tragic event. Yeah. I have a question about all of you who were first responders and who were at the hospital. So in this mass casualty, you were exposed to God knows what, Toxins, everything that's in the air, you know, similar to the World Trade Center. So, are there is there any kind of long term follow up from an exposure standpoint for all of you? No. <laughs> so the question the question was about uh, potential exposure at sites like this, um, and um, that's a great question. And um, as Dr. Kalka was mentioning, uh, there's a lot of questions about what what was the components of of that environment. Um, and uh, you know, people who are used to rescues and firefighting, um, you know, encounter this all the time. Um, there's some interesting initiatives that I think hopefully will answer some of those questions. Um, there's a program called the um, uh, Firefighters Biomonitoring Collective that is looking at rates of uh, cancer that are maybe related to environmental exposures, um, mostly because of the fact that a lot of the components of uh, manufactured, you know, our manufactured environment, uh, when you combust it, it's very toxic. Um, but at the time, uh, when there are people entrapped in a, a burning building or airplane or vehicle, um, it's, you know, people are not going and, and taking an air sample and determining that unless there's an obvious risk. Um, but to, to answer your question, there's, there is follow-up. There are a lot of questions. Um, nobody knows, um, but we don't have any confirmed toxic exposures from this incident. Yeah. We actually ran toxicology on some patients, and there was nothing confirmed. So... For those of us at the hospital, we probably weren't exposed to anything. Yeah? Uh, what did you find uh, was uh, the mental state of, of the patients? I mean, I would be very concerned about something like, especially in children. Um, and how did you, how did uh, Services of General and other trauma centers deal with this uh, over the, over even past the initial shock, right? Beyond? Yeah. That is a fantastic question. So uh, one of the things that was quite remarkable about this is it took us, uh, very, we divided into a bunch of teams the day after this to round on the patients who were hospitalized. And it took forever to round because every single patient wanted us to tell, wanted to tell us about their experience. So they wanted to say I was seated in seat 16C, 
Um, I don't know, some of you have probably seen the movie Sully, and at the end of the movie, they interview all the people and they say I was passenger blah 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 that's what they wanted to tell us this is what I saw this is what happened this is how I think I got injured and I think that was very therapeutic for them that we allowed them that opportunity we also offered um, all of the patients um, in the hospital um, the opportunity to talk to someone if they wanted to uh, to debrief about their experience and then we provided them with contact information for resources in the community as a follow-up Several of these patients I still um, am taking care of as outpatients for the um, long-term effects of their injuries, and I will tell you that they are all doing, from an emotional standpoint, the ones that I'm still in contact with quite well, and I think it's because of that care that was wrapped around them when they first got injured. For us as providers, that's the other part of it, multiple different types of opportunities to debrief about this in either private sessions or public forums. We had a public debrief as well. We're going to take one last question. Someone has one? Yeah. Okay, so who pays for all of this care? Does Asiana pay for anything? Yes. <laughs> so a very interesting thing happens um, if you you guys obviously can't because they're protected records but if you go to the records of these patients that were cared for at San Francisco General I assume it's the same at all the other hospitals the National Transportation Safety Board subpoenaed all of the medical records of all these patients and in the front of every single one of these charts it talks about how this record is now owned by the federal government and they took all that information um, for the Bills that were paid, that is a very complicated question that the providers were kept out of. I know that the airline company paid in some capacity, some of us, for all the airline employees who were injured. They paid the bill 100% in full, and those people are well cared for going forward. Um, For the passengers, it kind of depended on which country they came from because they're governed by those these types of things, and airline crashes are apparently governed by where you live, and that determines what you're entitled to. So a very complicated question, but the airline company was on site and they really provided as much care as I think they could within the scope of being outside their normal location. All right. Thank you guys so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.